Hello and welcome to another edition of the Hermeneutics Podcast. I'm your host, Naam O'Brien, and this is the program dedicated to the art and science of biblical interpretation. On today's episode, we have the conclusion of my interview with Drs. Leo Purser and Gary Yates of Liberty University's John W. Rawlings School of Divinity. Dr. Purser and Dr. Yates joined me on the podcast to discuss the New Testament use of the Old Testament. We will pick up where we left off last week on the question of typology and allegory. Uh, what about allegory? Since we'll, since I had him on recently, I'll just I'd extend it to allegory. And to follow up that question is if if it's in the Bible, are we as interpreters free to do the same? <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I tell my hermeneutics folks. You know, you can have a lot of. I think the the where where the line is. Yeah. Wait, Gary. I'm sorry, my my internet was uh, skipping around a little bit there. Right. I, I would say sometimes the line between typology and allegory is we we have pretty hard and fast understanding of that. My understanding in general is that typology is tr trying to bring out sort of larger patterns in scripture, whereas allegory may tend to try to find significance in the parallels uh, at every level in a story. We certainly have that in the Bible, and very, and, and the continuum is sort of a little bit more flexible, maybe than in our categories. But obviously, I think the 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 best example that most of us think about is Galatians chapter four, where there there you could argue that this is kind of a form of typology that seems to go a little bit more into allegory. Paul even refers to it in that way. To me, I'm a little less hesitant with, or, or I mean, I'm a little more hesitant with the idea of us allegorizing. And, and, and doing that sort of interpretation. In Galatians chapter four, I, I wonder if Paul isn't engaging in that sort of technique because he's responding to, uh, he's responding to his opponents and using a, a, an argument or a methodology that they would have accepted, uh, whereas that may not be something that, um, you know, would necessarily resonate in in our audience, if we're trying to build build a biblical case or an argument in that way, um, typology seems to be more sort of generally related to the the idea that God is at work in history. These patterns are repeating themselves. Uh, but again, I know that sometimes the line between typology and allegory for the biblical writers probably wasn't as clear uh, as maybe we make it in a modern context. Uh, like I was, I was going to say, I tell my hermeneutic students that we often have, uh, we have toolkits for our hermeneutics, and 21st century folks have a pretty expensive toolkit because we have everything that's gone on before us to build on, right? Um, but not every tool in that toolkit is something that I'm necessarily trained well to use. That's how I view allegory. Uh, Paul certainly uses the word allegory to describe what he's doing, even though I kind of agree, Dr. Yates, it sounds more like typology than allegory. Maybe it's a typology that bleeds into allegory. I'm not sure how you want to read that. But on the other hand, um, I, I wouldn't say that most allegor allegorical interpretation I saw in the church fathers leading up to the Reformation period, at least, seemed fairly subjective. There, there, there wasn't real connections to the historical reality. And uh, not always, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't throw all of them under the bus, but in general, um, that's how allegory happened. And I think that's what led so many, Augustine among them, 
to come to conclusions that allegory might be useful for difficult passages, but there should be rules on it. So I just tell my students, if you're, you know, you're not qualified to use the, the, uh, the, the jigsaw, don't use it. You know, uh, you don't want to cut yourself up. So most of us, I think most 21st century Christians I know aren't studied enough in allegory to make sense of it. We may know enough about it having read this, that, or other article, or some church father had an allegory about Israel or Jerusalem. I, I'd be hesitant to put that in my toolkit as a hermeneutical tool, to be honest with you, um, just because I don't know that I'd use it well. I, I, I might mess things up. Hmm. All right, moving right along to the third issue or question is the question of context. Do the New Testament authors observe and respect the context of the Old Testament text they cite, or do they treat them uh, atomistically by ripping them out of their literary and historical context? We kind of discussed it a little bit already, uh, but just any follow-up thoughts? Well, I, I don't think the New Testament is atomistic in general. Um, there may be passages that we read that we think sound atomistic, that they're, they're ripping things out of context, inserting proof texting, if you want to call it that. Um, on the other hand, I, I do think most of the New Testament writers, as far as I know, try to take seriously at least the theological context, if not the historical context of those materials. So I don't think, um, I, I would not see this as um, quite as atomistic as uh, some other Jewish interpretations might be. I mean, I, I it, it, can, can someone argue that there's atomistic interpretations in the New Testament? Yes, they can argue that, but I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that there are. Um, first of all, we have to define, as Richard Hayes does, what we mean by an, a, a, a quote or an allusion or an echo and so on and so forth. And then, you know, that brings on the whole question of a lot of other issues. My point is this, yes, I think people have accused the New Testament of doing that. But I personally don't find any evidence that it's a regular habit. Yeah, I, I would think that um, in general, there, 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 there are exceptions. But I think that in general, if you really, really look at the larger context, there's some sort of connection to most uh, you know, New Testament texts that are using Old Testament passages. And going back to the, the Hosea 11 example, there, that verse one is obviously talking about you know Israel being called out of Egypt rather than Messiah, but again in the larger context of chapter eleven, it is about God's promise to restore Israel, and after the judgment there would be a time of salvation. So in some sense, there's there is a link to the larger context. The other thing that you have to keep in mind is that at times they're really just using the Old Testament for illustrative purposes, or they're using the language of scripture because of the familiarity that people have with scripture. And that sort of infuses significance into whatever you're talking about. But they're often using passages in very just sort of illustrative kind of example ways. I, I think about Paul when he talks about in Isaiah 28, you know, tongues are a sign for uh, unbelievers and he goes back to this passage in Isaiah about how God will use the Assyrians and the foreign tongue of the Assyrians as a, a message of judgment against uh, Israel because they didn't listen to the prophets. If, if you're looking at that as like he's interpreting Isaiah to talk historically about tongues, that's obviously not what the passage is doing. 
But if he's using that passage to make an illustration, to draw an analogy, to give an example, and, and again, their examples are, are, are infused with scripture, uh, you know, I, I think that's a, a lot of times what's happening where we might look at it and say, well, those two texts look very disconnected from each other, and there's a total disregard for what's going on in the historical setting of the passage. Excellent. So moving on to the fourth, exegetical methods. Uh, do the New Testament authors simply share the interpretive assumptions and methods of their unconverted Jewish contemporaries, or do they deploy deeper, distinctive, exegetical, and interpretive grids? And if so, what are they? Let me say right off the bat, I don't like the word simply share. <laughs> Does anyone simply share an interpretive method of their contemporaries? Hmm. Right? Do we simply share? Trust me, I've taught hermeneutics long enough here at Liberty, and I've heard some of my former students preach to know they're not doing historical grammatical interpretation, um, right? So I, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to, to, to say yes to that because it's simply share. Hmm. Do the New Testament authors share the interpretive methods of their contemporaries, even their non-Christian contemporaries? I think the clear answer to that is just like in the 21st century. Well, sure they do. It's their culture. Um, why wouldn't they? Now, to what extent? That's a different question. Um, you know, I know I know there are lots of people out there who don't want uh, midrash or pesher or some of these other things to, to come up in the conversation because they think that uh, the way they were used in other contexts were bad usages. I got that. I understand that. But that doesn't necessarily um, rule out the possibility that somebody in the New Testament might have used this in, in, in a different way or, or um, used this method, at least, to come to a conclusion about Jesus and Messiah. So I would say, yes, they do use them. The larger question is, uh, you know, what were they and how do we, um, can we appropriate those? You know, I'll be honest with you, I'm not as familiar with a lot of them personally. So I'm a little hesitant to say, by all means, go for it. Use Pesher if you want to. But if you think about it, Pesher and Midrash are kind of a modern day something, at least in commentaries, uh, at least in how we do our commentaries in, uh, on the Bible. Uh, I'm not saying they're exactly the same, but the method is similar. Um, so we do some of this. Um, somebody said, well, you know, the, 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 the first century people read themselves in the text. And I said, oh, yeah, nobody in the 21st century would ever do that. Right. So. So we're still doing some of the same things they did. So I think the, the larger question is, how beneficial are these methods? Can we determine which ones are actually being used and what, what's required to do that? That may be a little more uh, technical than, than we realize. I'm not saying we can't. It just may take a little more effort than we, we, we want to think through in some cases. I, you know, to me, an example of this would be where they share something, but there's a distinctive idea like, the Qumran community believed that the eschatological era had arrived and that they represented that community. Right. The, the New Testament writers share that same conviction that they are the eschatological community, but they see that because of the coming of Christ. So they share a common eschatological orientation to their understanding of where they are at in salvation history. They have a very different understanding of why and the significance of Christ being the reason that, uh, you know, that, that they see themselves in that way. So I think that's where they share some of these things, but, uh, you know, from a distinctive uh, Christological Christian perspective, 
but but they believe the last days have arrived and and see themselves as as the fulfillment of of those promises and that sort of thing the new covenant has been inaugurated and that um so i i think there's 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 both similarity and difference um you know the the ways that the jews sometimes do midrash and those types of things they often use methodology and and whether it's like you know the atomistic use of words or uh, sort of lifting things out of context that that may be a little bit foreign to us I, I do think uh, that the old the New Testament writers do at times use these types of things as a form of argumentation. I mean, they're doing apologetics for the gospel in a first century context. So how would uh, how would they not use those types of things? But but midrash basically uh, is just the idea that we're searching or seeking for a deeper meaning, significance, application of the text. And you know, most of our sermons, Bible studies. Contemporary applications that we make are, and I used to have a professor that would, you know, he would dismiss some of our, that's a Christian midrash and that sort of thing. But, you know, in a, in a sense, we're all trying to fill out the contemporary significance deeper, uh, full, like how do we put this into practice in our culture versus theirs? So I, I, I do see some of those similarities between even things like midrash and, and the ways that we as Christians read and apply scripture today. So my final question uh, for you all um, is the idea that we, we briefly mentioned earlier, but the concept of replication. Can we as contemporary readers of the Bible uh, properly duplicate the exegesis of the Old Testament exemplified by the New Testament? So, uh, much easier stated, can we model the hermeneutics of the New Testament or the New Testament writers? I, I'm going to say uh, yes, uh, because I believe that um, it's, their, their, their reading of the Old Testament is something that they learned from Christ himself. And, and I think if we, if we could go back and hear the sermon uh, that Jesus preached to the disciples on the road, or the discussion that he had on the, on, on the road with the disciples that didn't recognize him in Luke 24, I, I think we would see Jesus patterning, showing the pattern of this type of typology and and things that the apostles are going to reflect in the uh, uh, in the New Testament themselves. So, in, in light of the fact that we share the assumptions that they have, that the eschatological era has arrived, that Christ is the the, the Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic promises and those types of things, if we share those theological convictions we're obviously going to read uh, the text uh, of the Old Testament in the same way. Now, my interpretations and typology and those types of things aren't inspired in the way that uh, the apostles were, but they weren't just using some sort of heavenly form of exegesis that they got uh, from, from direct revelation from, from the Holy Spirit. They were using a form of reading and interpretation that was based on their understanding of Jesus and, uh, you know, I pulled out a quote from uh, Moise Silva uh, in advance, uh, just because I knew we were going to have this discussion. He says, if we refuse to pattern our exegesis after that of the apostles, we are in practice denying the authoritative character of their scriptural interpretation. And to do so is to strike at the very heart of the Christian faith. So I think it is important to, 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 to follow uh, the lead of the apostles in the way that we read the Old Testament. Now, I think the caution is, um, you know, they, they often read the Old Testament in highly, highly figural ways. Um, and, and again, in ways that probably resonate a little bit more with their original audience than maybe with a contemporary one. 
So I'm, I'm not sure that we go into to that level of figural reading. And uh, I've been looking at some of the ways that Paul uses the story of the new covenant, Jeremiah and the new covenant and in second Corinthians and those types of things, all sorts of really creative figural type of things. And uh, Richard Hayes has brought a lot of this out in some of his mm -hmm. studies. But I think the basic practice of typology and Christological reading of scripture and reading scripture through a Christological lens and that sort of thing, um, it's based on their theology. We share that theology. So why would we not uh, read the scriptures in the same way? Yeah, and I, I would agree. I think we sh should uh, use the, the apostles' methods personally. I also think that we need to be cautious to make sure we know what we're doing in some cases. I know we're, since we talked about Galatians 4 earlier, I want to make sure I include that. But I also think we do this whether we are acknowledging it or not. Um, most Christians know that the Lord's Supper is at least depicted as a Passover meal, right? But a lot of evangelical Christians have no idea what a real Passover meal is, or, or there are very few of them have participated in one. And I can tell you some of the symbolism in the Passover meal is very, very amazingly, it's, it tells the gospel. <laughs> I, I was invited to a Passover for at a Reformed seminary, or Reformed synagogue in, in uh, Waco, Texas. The, the priest there and I had become friends. And so he invited me to come and, and observe and participate as much as a Goyim could. And uh, so I sat at the table with this little old lady, and she, she so graciously explained to me everything we were doing. And she got the one symbol um, that had to do with the breaking of the bread and the dipping of the bread in the water. And she said, I'm really, really not sure what that has to do with Passover. And she said, what do you think? Well, of course, as a Christian, I immediately talked about Jesus' broken body and poured out blood. And she actually said, I love this because this quote has stuck with me. Huh, I wonder if Christian Jews brought that into our practice. It's a great question. I don't have a good answer. I'll be honest with you because I don't know the history of the Passover meal. My point is, we already do some of that when we partake of the bread and the wine, or the bread and the juice in most Baptist churches. When we partake of communion, we are doing Passover, but we're doing it typologically with Jesus as the Passover lamb, right? I, I think that's so I don't see a problem in doing it with, with the text. Um, the larger question is, should we read the New Testament typologically, which you know may or may not come up <laughs> as a final question. I, I don't know about that. I'll be honest with you. Not because I think it's necessarily a wrong idea. Just not sure what that would look like. What are we comparing it to? Right? The Old Testament readers or the New Testament readers of the Old Testament are comparing their experience with Jesus to these texts. So what are we comparing it to? The future coming of Jesus, the promise of his return, the eschatological age. So I'm a little hesitant to say typological readings of the New Testament are necessarily beneficial or should be done. I'm just not, I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm just not sure. How's that? So yes, qualified. So as we wrap up the discussion, is there any thing that I'm missing from, from the interview today from the topics that I brought up that is important to discuss when talking, like through your course that you just did in the summer, when talking about the New Testament use of the old? Well, the, the last thing that I, and I touched on this a little bit just in the last answer I get, gave is that 
I, I do think that there's a literary aspect to this. And we often want to make the way that the, the New Testament writers use the Old Testament as, a, as strictly a hermeneutical question. I, I think often it just involves them in a very sort of literary, uh, figural, they're, they're trying to infuse deeper significance into the things that they're talking about. So they're gonna use the, the imagery and language of scripture. Um, and, and so often, I'm not sure that we even should be viewing this as much as a, of a hermeneutical question as it is uh, some of the literary ways that the Old Testament is being intertextually introduced into the New Testament. Uh, again, to show patterns, uh, deeper significance, uh, the way that salvation history is moving forward or coming to a, a climax in some way, those types of things. So I, I, th I think a lot of times we get wrapped up in this idea, like we've got to, are they, are they exegeting scripture properly a lot of times I'm not sure they're really trying to exegete scripture as much as they are use the scriptures in literary and figurative ways to bring out theological, uh, you know, message, meaning, and significance. And uh, I, I think that's a really important part of this discussion. And I would agree. And I would add the biggest, well, maybe not the biggest, one of the biggest problems in evangelical Christianity today is a failure to remember our story. Not the biblical story, not the New Testament story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and his promised return. I think most evangelicals kind of have an idea of what that's about. I'm talking about the Old Testament story, which is uh, our book, our Bible, does not start with Matthew. It starts with Genesis. And because we're not real familiar with the Old Testament story, we miss these connections, these figural or typological or illiterary connections that the, the writers make because we simply don't know the text. Uh, and so we miss them. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've heard colleagues uh, like Dr. Yates and others who are teach Old Testament say, yeah, Paul might be referring this, and I'll, I'll get my Bible out, and I'll go over there and go, oh, how did I never see that before? And you go look in the New Testament, it's not cross-referenced, right? The point is, most of us don't know the story well enough. And the one thing, since Dr. Yates mentioned uh, Richard Hayes, I want to encourage uh, folks to kind of check out his stuff. Hayes has reminded me that I have to be immersed in the story. Um, I think Van Hoover, uh, Van Hooser calls it being um, a theodrama, being a part of the story. Because if I'm immersed in the story, then I'm going to know some of these connections a little easier. I'm going to see them more, uh, more clearly, and it's going to come more naturally. But the problem with most of us is we simply don't know the stories that well. I'll be honest, Leviticus is not a book I know that well. But, you know, I can make comparison to Psalms or some of the, the, the prophets. So I think we need to be more aware of our story. How's that? Yeah, and I think uh, a book that really brought a lot of that out for me was Greg Beal's New Testament theology, because he was explaining how the, the, the theology of the New Testament is connected to the story of the Old Testament, the working out of salvation history. And I go back to that book uh, often, you know, when I'm preparing to, to teach on these ideas or the themes, because of the way he develops things like new creation, is an idea that begins even in Genesis. Noah is a new Adam. Uh, Abraham and Israel are new Adams. David and Solomon are new Adams. And we keep moving forward until we eventually uh, you know, arrive at Christ as the ultimate new Adam. But, but understanding those, uh, you know, the, the literary, theological, uh, it, it's more than just like they're doing hermeneutics on the Old Testament. Uh, I think they're theologizing on the, on the Old Testament in, in highly 
you know, literary theological ways. And that book has helped me to really, you know, put together parts of the, uh, the biblical story and, and how salvation history connects together. I think maybe that's a, that's a key aspect in this is that make sure as we're working through the use of the Old Testament in the New that we're keeping that focus on the, you know, the, the development, the story of salvation history and uh, how that's working itself out. Hmm. So I, I wrote down Greg Beale's New Testament theology. Uh, you mentioned, you both had mentioned uh, Richard Hayes. What are some books that you would recommend from him? Uh, he has uh, the Echoes of scriptures, uh, Scripture books uh, and Paul, uh, the Gospels. If you're looking for a smaller version on the Gospels, we've uh, we've used the Reading Backwards book in our class. And he has a, a chapter on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and kind of their, their use of the Old Testament. And um, it's, I, I, those, those, those are excellent resources. I'll admit the, the, the Reading Backwards book really, really impressed me. Um, as I read through it, he made connections that I, I'd never quite seen, but as he made them, I went, oh, that's so intuitive, it's there. So again, this brings me back to the fact that Hayes, Hayes made me go, I got to go read my story better because I just don't, I didn't see that connection. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I think all three of those book by Hayes, the two echoes of scripture are very technical. So just as a heads up to your listeners, um, but the, the, the reading backwards is a very readable text. Okay. Before I let you go, I have one more question, particularly for Dr. Yates, because he wrote the book, the message of the 12. Um, who is your, favorite Old Testament prophet, and why is it the prophet Nahum? <laughs> well, just because of, uh, you know, uh, he he spawned a, a podcast uh, from one of his namesakes, so uh, <laughs> obviously that has to be, uh, that has to be at the top of the list. <laughs> and anybody that would prophesy the destruction of the Ninevites has to be a good guy, too, so... <laughs> Yeah, it, it does. I do often wonder, though, if Nahum was jealous of uh, Jonah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Nahum prophesied it, then Jonah prophesied it, and they repented. I don't know how they would have reacted to that, I'll be honest yeah. with you, but yeah. I've, I've always wondered if Nahum had had the same mindset that Jonah had towards the, the Assyrians. Or, yeah, the, the Assyrians. Did, did he want their judgment just as bad as Jonah did? We don't really get a sense of his what he's thinking. We just get the the, the message. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I, I've always wondered that. I, I'll be honest with you. I get the distinct impression, at least in the Hebrew. I took a minor prophets class at Baylor. It's one of the few Hebrew <clears throat> classes I actually took. And Nahum's language is just almost, at least from my perspective, is almost angry. <laughs> I mean, the horses are riding and the trampling's going. It's just, you see these, this image in your head and it's almost like he's standing back there going, and they deserve it, right? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know that Nahum really said that. I'm, I'm putting obviously words in the prophet's mouth. Jonah, on the other hand, actually does. He says to God, hey, I knew you'd be nice to these people. That's why I don't want to preach to them. So it does make you wonder what the connection is between these two as far as um, the, the prophecies are not you know, dramatically different in the sense of, the warning, but they're, de they're at least different in the outcome. I don't, I don't guess we know what Nahum's outcome was, do we? Uh, I'm not aware of it. Yeah, I don't know. But I, I usually, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to uh, 612 BC, the Babylonians come and destroy it. So, uh, oh, so I guess he, it, he got, 
he got the less envious job. Jeremiah or Jonah got to preach the salvation, and so he had to preach the judgment. So. Yeah. <laughs> the first the first sermon I ever preached was my in my independent fundamental background, and my I I made a bold statement to my youth pastor one day that I didn't think his job was too hard, and so he challenged me to. Uh, <laughs> He challenged me to write a sermon on my own, so I went down to the local bookstore and bought J. Vernon McGee's commentary on Habakkuk and Nahum, and I wrote what I thought was a majestic sermon on the book of Nahum, and uh, lasted all of six minutes, I think. And um, <laughs> I, I finally, I, I, when I was packing to move to Norway, I, I discovered the sermon again, and I read it, and it was a hermeneutical nightmare. Um, <laughs> it, it was horrendous. Well, that's, uh, preaching on Nahum is gutsy anyway, so uh, <laughs> I, guess, I guess you get bonus points for level of difficulty. <laughs> it was all, my, my interpretation was all about America, of course. Um, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I, I usually end every interview by asking if there's, is there anything that we can uh, pray for you guys about uh, the listeners in the coming weeks ahead, stuff that you got going on in life, so on and so forth? Well, personally, um, my wife is uh, battles multiple sclerosis, and so she's immunocompromised. So with COVID, uh, it's kind of slowly slowing down here in the Lynchburg area, I'm happy to say. But there's still this, you know, edginess about the, how, how often can she go out and should she go out. And then I've come in here to the office on a regular basis. And so just prayer for protection. Uh, and, and, and then we use good wisdom. Yeah. And, um, I, th I think for me, uh, along with teaching right now, I'm pastoring a, a church here in the area. And so just wisdom and kind of balancing those responsibilities and, and being faithful to, to both areas of ministry that God's given to me right now. So, And I will say this, just because to, 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 I want to brag about my colleague. My wife, if, she doesn't, if she's not able to go to our church, she watches his church on Facebook. So his church, Living Word Baptist, streams on Facebook on Sunday mornings. And it always frustrates her when your microphone doesn't work, Gary. <laughs> You'll get into the sermon and the bits and pieces of it will cut out. So just as a heads up. Yeah, they're they're just you, turning me off. They're just turning they're me turning off. They're turning <laughs> The sound man trying to give you a heads up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, seriously, with all, all joking aside, um, if you, if you, he is online and he, you, you uh, I also I do some preaching duties at Forest Community Church. Our church is uh, live streamed as well. We have a pastor that preaches half the time and I preach the other half. We love to have prayer for our ministries. And again, if, if any of your, yeah. uh, you know, listeners want to tune in at some point, they're welcome to do so. So that's Forest Community Church. Yep. That's of, correct. Forest Lynchburg, Virginia. Or it's Forest, in Forest. Forest, Virginia. Yeah. Okay. And uh, yours was Living Word. Yeah, Living Word Baptist um, Church, and okay. it's, it's also in Forest. Okay. All right. Well, uh, hopefully the listeners will be um, praying for you in the future weeks and, and attending some of your sermons. I didn't know that you guys were actually preaching in churches, so I'll probably attend some of them as well. Um, but again, thank you so much for joining me on, on the podcast today. It's been a real blessing for me just to, to see you guys again. And I know we, we didn't have the deepest relationships at college because I was also doing a double major in aviation, which if I had to go back again, while it was very cool, I'd probably focus more in seminary. Um, but uh, I, I definitely enjoyed the time getting to know you a little bit at the school, and this has been just wonderful. 
Yeah, thanks, Nam. It's been, uh, I appreciate the chance to reconnect. So God bless. Uh, God I enjoyed it. God bless on your ministry as well. Well, that concludes my interview with Drs. Leo Purser and Gary Yates. I hope it was as helpful and edifying to you as it was for me. I'd like to thank them once again for joining me on the podcast to discuss the New Testament use of the Old Testament. You can find more information about Drs. Yates and Purser at liberty.edu forward slash divinity. Again, that's liberty.edu forward slash divinity. Or you can find more info in the description section to this episode. I'd like to close with a quote from Martin Luther. Quote, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word did everything. <laughs>